about this book. Um, if I simply live by its principles, I will have a form of Christianity, and I'll go on and say, you'll have a form, but you will not have the degree of power that's assigned to it. You're just living by principles. So the Bible says to be truthful, I'm going to be truthful. The Bible says to love, I'm going to love. And, and so we, we engage the principles of the Word of God, which is fine and okay and good. However, all you will attain in life is a level of morality. And I'm here to tell you that this book is not about that. And it was quiet in that church. <laughs> now, you start there. That's level one. That's the introduction. That's the threshold of the doorway into greater things. I'm here to tell you that God has hidden mysteries in the content and the narrative of this book. Much of the mysteries are actually hidden in language and that of the Hebrew context. And, and so people are like, oh, do I need to go to school to learn Hebrew? Well, no, I'm telling you, the Spirit of God will fill the gaps. All right, so when you lend yourself, when you lean into the Holy Spirit, he, he compensates for all that you lack so that you can actually engage the truth. There are mysteries hidden two, three, four, multiple levels below simply the precepts of its narrative. Do you believe that? The reason why, you know, we've been, this church has gotten, I'm like, oh, you guys really go deep and deep. And I'm like, you know, it's not, well, I guess it is. And it, it, sometimes that bothers me because the pursuit of every believer is to unlock the mysteries. If, if you don't realize what Peter got from the Lord were keys. He didn't give him the doors. He didn't even tell him where the doors were. He just gave him keys to go find a door and open it up. And he didn't give him one key. He gave him the keys to the kingdom. And we have been given keys to kingdom insight so that we can unlock doors. Our pursuit is maturity. The context of that is that we, we, we are developed by the spirit of truth to a place where we actually are manifesting the nature of the Father, which is what a marriage is testified of. God needed someone on this planet. To engage and petition the courts for what was, how many of us were watching that or hearing about that and just kind of maybe in, in horror or whatnot, but we never engaged the courts. We gotta learn how to do that. Our response immediately is to assume our position in Christ. So with that said, and with the applause so loud you cannot hear your voice, I'm only kidding. I wanna go into a mystery today. Can we, can we unlock a mystery this morning? You get excited about unlocking mysteries, you're going to unlock something. How many of you have ever heard of Melchizedek? How many of you have not? Let me just say this, and I don't mean to, this is not to point you out, but I just, we're going to, we're going to dive into certain things, so I want to understand where we are. How many of you have never heard of, the, of Melchizedek? Okay, okay, so real quick, Melchizedek is only mentioned three, in three portions of Scripture in the entirety of the Bible. Yet he is so prominent and when he is introduced or is spoken about, that you would wonder, why isn't there more written about him? Who is this man? He shows up. We're going to go into the first uh, account of, of his appearance in, in Genesis, uh, Genesis, I think, 14, where he shows up and Abraham, how many of you know who Abraham is? I think we all know who Abraham is. Somehow Abraham knows about him. And honors him by giving him a tenth of what he just gained. And every message I have ever heard about Melchizedek 
was about tithing. Right, Pete? Because it says that, that Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek. And so our understanding is that story is in the Bible to teach us how to give a tenth to a church or to a ministry or to something. And, and that's, that has nothing to do with that story. But, but the question that ought to surface is, who is Melchizedek? The reason why I say that is that we're going to wind up in the book of Hebrews, the third place he's mentioned. And in the seventh chapter and part of the sixth chapter, the emphasis is that Jesus is from the Melchizedekian priest line. Now, they make a big deal about this. That he's not from the order of Levi, but he's the order of Melchizedek. And what, it, what it's saying is that the crucifixion, the resurrection, and everything that emanates out of that is from this priestly line. So it's important. But not much is read. Not much is written. So it's a mystery. How many of you know the Bible says it is the, it is the glory of God? It is, the, it is the desire. It, God's purpose is to hide things. Right? But what is the purpose of man? Or what is the purpose of a king? It's to search out what is hidden. It is, it is the glory of God to hide something, but it is the glory of a king to discover it. It's the greatest hide-and-seek game you'll ever play. Last week, we talked about mountains. Last week, I hope, if there was something that you received from it, that you realize that you are a king. You are of royal bl- blood. You, you, the scriptures are clear. You are a holy, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, now we hear these things, but I'm not sure they travel the 13 inches to our heart. But what does it mean to be a king? Well, well a king needs a kingdom. You need something to rule over. What we are learning is how is it that we engage, in this case, the courts of heaven to actually express that government. Jesus, it is said of him that the government upon his shoulders shall have no end. It will, it will increase and it will grow and that government would extend to all aspects of creation. You and I are the agency through which that government is dispersed. That really is the gospel. That we get to participate in what Romans 8 says, that that, that all of creation is waiting for the presentation of the sons of God. Why? Because creation wants to be ruled righteously. Oh, here's, here's an interesting point. The whole, the whole, here's a definition. I'm going to give you a definition of what does it mean to be righteous. How many of you have heard the word righteous? And, and, and there's this, okay, there's this notion of obedience, and there's this notion of I want to do right things. But, but, the, but the Hebrew context of the word righteous, and it's actually in the Strong's Concordance in one of the, uh, the, the definitions of that word, is that uh, righteousness is to actually keep the divine secrets of God or the divine ways of God. The laws of God, but they're the secret. In other words, that or he who is righteous is a keeper of God's intent and thoughts and secrets. So the king of righteousness 
is the one who, ha- who is, a, is in royal position to actually administer the secrets of God. Bring them from the place where they are concealed to the place where they are now revealed. This book is not simply a book. The Bible, the Scriptures talk of itself. It's its own witness to say that it is alive. That it is breathing. That it, that it has an organic nature to it. And by that, it is, it is more than what the words written on it are. When you, when you look at it that way, the Holy Spirit will show you depths, bring you through caverns, show you pathways of insight and understanding. Not just so that you can understand mysteries, but you can discover who you are. Your purpose is hidden in a mystery. This is really going over well this morning. I'll let that one... <laughs> you don't know where they are, but you, still, but you still cast. And you still put bait on there. So what are we doing now? We're casting. We don't know where the fish are, but i got an idea where this fish is. I'm going after one fish this morning. But you're right, Pete. I mean, Jesus, look at the pattern of Jesus. And this is, I've said this multiple times, but it stands true and it's worth repeating many more multiple times that Jesus doesn't reveal revelation, doesn't reveal insight unless he's asked a question. Think about that. If his purpose was to come and reveal everything, he would, he would give us the five steps, right? In Matthew 1, Luke 1, John 1, and, and Mark 1. And there ought to be a book called Jesus 1. Here it is. This is everything you need to know. Go and live a principle-filled life. <laughs> but he doesn't. And he tells them these stories that are cryptic. And he even in the stories are hiding things. And his disciples tell him, he said, we don't understand your stories. And it's only then that he explains. He doesn't explain every story. He only explains the stories that they asked him to explain. Listen, this is the nature of your father. He's going to put breadcrumbs in all your, in all your paths, in all your lives, and he's, going to, he's waiting for you to ask, seek, and knock. He's not just simply giving out. He says, do not cast your pearls before a swine, because they're just going to press it, press it into the mud. So we're going to pursue things, okay? We're going to ask questions that sometimes those questions are uncomfortable. There are many questions that I have asked. When I asked them, I was uncomfortable, but I would get answers to make me comfortable in asking the next question. Isaiah says, come and reason with me. Come and exchange thoughts with me. Man, this is, this is the invitation of those who are seeking and pursuing. So, so the question is, who is Melchizedek? All right? And, and, and by the way, let me break down that word. Malik is, is Hebrew for king. And Tzedek is righteous. So, so it's not his name. The, the Melchizedek is the reference to the king of righteousness. Right? And he shows up in Genesis somewhere. Let me find it. Genesis 14. So, so let me read some... Let me, uh, <laughs> we're just going to read some stuff here. We'll, we'll take it one step at a time. And, and let me, oh. if Jesus' source and purpose emanate out of this priesthood, 
this is, I don't want this, Marty, I don't want this just to be a theological discussion so that we all walk away with notes and, and have more knowledge and we can go impress our friends and whatnot. That's really not, our intent is this. If Jesus was tied to this priesthood and therefore operated by this priestly line, amen. In fact, I'll show you where he actually is inaugurated into the Melchizedekian priest line, and it has to do with, oh man, there's so much with John the Baptist. Do you realize John the Baptist was a priest? He was a priest because his father, Zechariah, was a priest of the order of Abijah. When Caiaphas was the high priest in Jerusalem, he was not a good guy. So God took the priesthood and put it in the desert. Now, we'll get into all this. When he is baptized, Jesus is baptized by a priest. And he had to be baptized by a Levitical priest to actually take on the Melchizedek. Ah, oh, there you go. I'm, I'm, way, I'm, I'm week three. Hold on. Stop it. I'm coming back. We're going to get there. That when he says, this day, I am anointed to do these things. He is not talking as, quote unquote, as God. He's not talking about a Levitical priest. He is talking about Melchizedek. Therefore, if we are from him, he is the firstborn among what? Whom? Many brethren. If he is from this order, where are you and I from? We are from the same order. Therefore, we have the same authority and we have the same appointments to release. And God just makes him show up three times. He says, you've got to find the rest. So we're going to look for some things this morning. All right, so we're in Genesis chapter 14. I'm just going to pick it up in verse 14. So Genesis 14, verse 14. Um, prior to this, let me set the stage. There is a war, there is a battle between four kings and five kings. And, and this is over Sodom and, and Lot is in Sodom. And, and, and the four kings that, over, that overcame the others, they took Lot and all his possessions. So we pick up where Abraham uh, comes into the picture in verse 14. Now, when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, that is Lot, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went into pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them day and night. I'm sorry, against them by night. And he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods. He also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. After his return from the, the defeat of Sherdolomar. I'm going to explain some of this in a moment, so just, just bear with me. And the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem which is the king of peace, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God the Most High. And he blessed him and said, uh, and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him, that is Abraham, gave him a tenth of all. Now the king of Sodom also said to Abraham, give me the verses, we don't need to read that. But, but here's the story that we just read. This, this battle took place. And Abraham 
fights against the four kings and defeats the four kings, because there was this incident, Melchizedek shows up. Who is this guy? And why does he show up now? And what is the purpose and significance of this man so much that he is mentioned in Hebrews as it relates to Jesus, the Messiah? This seems to be some kind of a... I mean, there were always battles and always wars. Why this one? Why at this point? And Abraham's life, he was Abram at this point, but Abraham's life changed significantly based on this encounter. The next chapter talks about, uh, he said, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. If God showed up to you in the night season and woke you up and said, listen, I do not want you to worry about the day that you will wake up into. For I am your covering, your shield, your gold dome, and I am your reward. I'm your salary and your compensation. How many of you would have a good night sleeping? That's exactly what happened to Abraham. He said, Abraham, your life will never be the same again because of what you did. And this is not a story about tithing. Can I get some coffee? Tea? Whatever it is. And that's always, I think I've preached on this as this is where you give us money. And when you give us money, good things happen to you. And, and, and you're living by principle. I'm not saying living by principle is, uh, is bad, but I'm saying there are dimensions of principles. There are dimensions. Uh, I'm going to go. When Jesus says, he's at, he's at the end of his ministry, he goes, listen, I have to leave because where I go, I want you to be there with me. And I go to prepare a place. And in that place, in my father's house are many, the King James's mansions, terrible translation. Horrible, right? But, but we, 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 that's the one that is mostly... Con- so we have this idea that God is building this amazing Sheridan in heaven. So we got songs about the kind of room you want. You know, I mean, this is how silly it is. He's not talking about... By the way, he says, where I'm going, I, where I am, I want you to be. I'm, I'm really getting off topic here. The reason why I say this is that word rooms literally means in my father's presence or dimensions. I am going to a place to release back in Adam the ability to engage the multidimensional concept of creation. And there you will navigate. We're going we're to touch on some of this stuff. The spirit realm is so ought to be so real to us. So that we in Florida can visit Colorado Springs. Come on. So Philip has to get to a town. He doesn't have to wait for somebody to invent a plane. The kingdom and presence of God is multidimensional. And Jesus says to his disciples, I engage in all of the aspects of the cosmos. And I am calling you to be where I am. It's not a hotel room. our minds are so silly sometimes. Thank you. So, so who is Melchizedek? All right. Now I got I got to share some things that you won't find here uh, necessarily. But but I want to say this. I don't even know how to start this. 
Adam lived 930 some odd years. I want you to, I wish I had, I should have had a presentation. I want you to have a, a, a mental image of this. So Adam lived 930 some odd years. Noah was the 10th generation from Adam. But Noah's, Noah's great-grandfather, I mean grandfather was Methuselah. Just kind of bear with me. Methuselah lived 960 some odd years. 969 years, right, Jordan? Methuselah and Adam lived at the same time. They were contemporaries. They overlapped. In other words, Methuselah and Adam talked to each other. Noah comes, right? And we know what happens in Noah's day is the flood. Right? And, and, and before the flood, men lived 900, 800, 600 years. After the flood, they started living like 100, and then they went down to about where we are right now. So, so that reduction in age isn't metaphor. It actually has to do with the, with the earth model being shifted. When the firmament came and it, and it rained 40 days, what was protecting you ultraviolet light is now gone, and so your main, the main aging effect on the planet is ultraviolet A and B. It is what is, is shortening the telomeres. I know, I know this gets deep. What I'm saying is, it's not an accident that you go from 900 to 100 to 70. It, it's real. So, so these timelines are real. So Adam was a contemporary, or I should say Methuselah was a contemporary. Methuselah spoke with Adam. Well, Methuselah was still alive to the year of the flood. He dies in the year of the flood. So Shem, one of Noah's sons, was alive when his great-grandfather walked the earth. Now, I've got to throw some things out there, and then we'll figure out how to tie it all together. Noah had three sons. How many of you know their names? Ham, beef, and chicken. Ham, Japheth, and Shem. Ham is cursed because his son Canaan, just bear with me on some of that. I know this is Bible stuff, but because of how Canaan, uh, he sinned when, when Noah, he doesn't cover Noah's sin, and, and there's a lot to that. So, so the judgment of Ham uh, is clear in the Scriptures. Japheth also is not cursed, but he is called to serve and live in the tents of Shem. Right? So out of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Shem is the one that is elevated to the top. And it is clear when they come off the boat, God blesses Shem. He does not bless Japheth. And Ham. He says, blessed is the God of Shem. This is important. Because when he comes off the boat, he gets Noah and his sons, and he tells them what he told Adam. I want you to multiply, be fruitful and multiply, and occupy the planet. So the assignment of Adam was transferred to Noah and to Noah's sons, but of Noah's sons... Shem was the one who received it. Shem 
is where we get the Semitic people. It is where the Jews come from. It is where the Arabs come from. It is where all Semitic people are from. That is actually, the word Semitic is derived from Shem. Okay? Is this just so? So he comes off, Shem bridges the flood. He lived before the flood, because he was born before the flood, and he's after the flood. He's the one who is holding both sides of judgment. Remember, he is alive when his grandfather Methuselah was alive, who was alive when Adam was alive. So Shem can have a conversation with his great-grandfather who would talk to Adam. This won't give you context. Could you imagine having access to Adam? I know we think, you know, when you think of Adam and, and you, you think of like maybe the things that are not good, right? The fall and all that. I get that. But he is still called the son of God. He's still called that in the scriptures. Adam. And there are only two that were ever created. It is the first Adam and the last. It is Adam himself and Jesus. So he stands in a hot place, even in his fall. So Shem had access to knowledge of creation. Not only did he have access to knowledge of creation, he was given the blessing to procreate the same way that Adam had. I can show you all this in in Genesis, but I'm trying to bring it all to you. Shem lived 600 some odd years which is inclusive of Abraham's total life. Shem was alive when Abraham died. Jewish tradition has it that Shem attended Abraham's funeral. So why are you saying this? Of the four kings that are mentioned in this Bible, the only one by name that comes out when, when Abraham, by the way, Abraham lineage goes back to Arphaxad, right? Arphaxad is actually Shem's son. Another son is called Elam, E-L-A-M. Sherdolomar is the king of Elam. Just hang in there. You're like, where are you? So, so Sherdolomar is the, is the king of Elam, which comes from Shem. Abraham is the, in the lineage of Arphaxad, who is the son of Shem. The other three kings are not from Shem. The only king that is named in verse 18... I'm sorry, verse 17. Let me go read it. When the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of the kings after his return from the defeat of Sherdolomar and the other kings. By the way, the other kings are mentioned early, but right now they're just other kings. The one king that stands out is Sherdolomar. And then Sherdolomar is defeated by Abraham and Melchizedek shows up. What in the world is going on? Because Abraham killed Shadolomar, and they were both of the same heritage, a peace offering had to be offered to the patriarch of that heritage 
to bring peace and a new covenant into the earth. I will say this. I'm going to back it up with something soon. I used to teach wrongly that Melchizedek was a theophany. How many of you know what a theophany is? Fancy, fancy Greek word. That means Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. Right? And I'm going to show you why we taught that. Because it says in Hebrews that he was, he was a priest who had no father, no mother, had no beginning of days and no ending of days. We're going to go why that's said. First of all, Jesus has a father. And he had a beginning because he's begotten. So we'll, we'll get into it. We'll get, he's not talking about that. He's talking about those. The priests, the priests were always tied to Levi. All of them. What he's saying is that there's this peculiar priesthood that has no tie to Levi. Therefore, he has no beginning, no ending as it relates to Levitical lineage. And we'll, we'll get into all that. My point is this. If he's not Jesus, then who is he? There is a book that is not in our canon called the Book of Jephthah. Or Japher. J-A-P-H-E-R. Similar, I've, I've mentioned like, for example, the book of Enoch. Especially Enoch 1. Not Enoch 2 or 3. Enoch 1. Is referenced verbatim by Peter. And by, in fact, he's quoted in Jude. A whole chapter is quoted. And these were books that they would have in the early church. For some reason, we don't have them. I don't know the reasons for that. But the book of Japher is actually, not only is it quoted, it's mentioned in the Scriptures. In the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 10, verse 13, talks about the day the sun stood still. How many of you have ever read about the day the sun? And it says in, in the latter part of that Scripture, as it is written in the book of Japher. But we don't have that book. And we don't have it in our canon. In the book of Japher, it says that Melchizedek is Shem. Hey, we've got to unlock some mysteries. That what happened was that when Abraham killed Sherdolomar, it became a family feud. And the patriarch of that family had to be acknowledged so that the kings and nations that were at war would now have peace. Sherdolomar and Abraham of that fight were only those who were of the Semitic line. So Shem shows up as the king of Salem and the king of Tzedek, or righteousness. And Abraham knows who he is. And what does Abraham offer? He doesn't just offer a tithe. He offers a peace offering. The peace offering, the peace offering is what brings peace to a family feud. Hmm. When Jesus comes out of the tomb, he's walking. Who approaches him to embrace him? Mary. Right? Remember what he says to Mary. Do not touch me, for I have not yet gone to my God and your God and my father, my patriarch, and your patriarch. I'll build this up next week. or We're going to need at least two more weeks on Melchizedek. I'm going to build this up. I'm going to just say this. When, when Jesus comes out of the Jordan, he's inaugurated into this priest line. We'll develop that. His whole ministry is not a Levitical ministry. It is a Melchizedekian ministry. And so is mine. And so is yours. 
When he came out, he says, do not touch me, for I have not ascended to my patriarch. What he was saying is, I have yet not offered the peace offering. The peace offering was his blood. And that blood had to be offered to the father to settle a family feud between Adam and Jesus. Now, oh, come on. When he said this is done, he said the family feud of humanity has been settled by my priesthood. Go to Hebrews chapter. Ah, go to go to Psalm chapter two. Are you guys okay? I know this is a lot, I, I, but but it's but it's it is what it is. I don't I don't know how to make it not a lot. And you will find, and we will find our purpose in this. Raymond, you meditate on this stuff. Mark, just the same way you, you wrote, you say, listen, I did this in childlike faith. That's exactly where you go with this. Just, oh man, I just, okay, I get all you're saying, but I am of this priesthood. I am of a priesthood that is, that is charged with settling a dispute. This is why we engage the courts. This is why you're called to come boldly and, and to come with, with courage to obtain the very instruments of the court, mercy and peace. To, to, we always think that has to do with your need. He doesn't say your need. He says, come in time of need. Come on. Come on. There was a time of need for Colorado Springs. I think it was Colorado Springs. We, here, here's the Western gospel. It's about my issues, about my needs, about my problems. It's about I need a car. I need a house. So we internalize everything about, I need healing. And God's saying, no, listen, you, you come boldly to my throne in time of need, and we here in time of my need. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, in time of need. Now, it could be your need, but when Paris is under assault, there's a need. And God's waiting for one of his children to come into the courts to resolve what has been assigned to the blessing of Shem, which is to go and populate the earth. Ah, this is good. Why is it that the greatest fight on the planet right now is between Islam and, and Christianity or, or, or Judaism? These are the, these are, this is a family feud, Ahmed. They're both Semitic people. And, and there has yet to be someone who has learned how to engage the courts to come on behalf of this conflict. Here's what we do. We interpret it all in the context of end times. And, and we, just, we just abdicate our response. Oh, it's just going to end that way. And Jesus is going to come and, he, and he's just going to, he's going to wipe out all those bad people and he's going to keep all the good people. And we have this. And what do we do? We just sit in our seats and we don't engage the court. Because we have this eschatology that, that disarms us. Oh. That, was a, that was a commercial that... May not, may not air many more times. I don't know. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? He is talking about the day when the nations were at war in the time of Abraham. He says, and why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain things? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against whom? Against the Lord or Yahweh? 
and against His anointed. Who is His anointed in this Scripture? It's not Jesus. He hasn't shown up. It's Melchizedek. He is the King of Righteousness. He's the King of Peace. He is Shem. Ah. And that the kings rose up to fight against Yahweh and His magistrate. And look what it says. It says, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you an interpretation of what this looks like in the Hebrew. This literally looks like this. That they are coming against God and God's anointed one, Melchizedek, to break the culture that comes from them. The enemy's purpose is not only to bring you and to, and to, and to uh, develop a case against you, it is to, it is to destroy the culture of his presence to destroy the culture of the supernatural, to make you think you are mere people. Paul says this to those in the church of Corinth. Why do you consider yourself to be mere men? You will judge angels. Don't you have, an, uh, don't you have a concept of who you are in Christ and the dimensions that you have access to and the authority that you ought to be yielding and uh, wielding? Don't you understand that? You're acting like mere Adam. Why? Because the enemy's, my enemy's purpose is to, is to deconstruct culture, God's culture. I'll tell you this, our purpose right now is to create culture. And I'm not talking about culture that makes us feel good. I'm talking about culture that raises up those who engage the spiritual world so easily that it is as if they're going to work in the morning in the natural. Think about that. He says this, he says, he says to cast away their cords and he who sits in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall hold them in derision, and He shall speak to them in His wrath, and distress them in His deep displeasure. Yet I have set my King on my holy hill, which is what? Zion. I hope, you, I hope this is all connecting, because last week we talked about hills and mountains, and specifically Zion. Who is on Zion? Hebrews chapter 12. This we have come to, to the innumerable company of angels, to the church of the firstborn, to the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, from where the government of Christ is, is seated. Uh, he's saying this, out of, out of man, I will take a man, and his name will be Christ, his name will be Jesus, I'll take a man, and from his DNA, I will establish those who are the magistrates over all of creation. Zion shall be their home. You know where Zion is? It's the place you worship. It is the place God brings you to. You, to. you know, we, Karen, this is something I want, I want to, our worship, you represent our worship team. I want, and that, that when we're, we're, we're hearing the voice of God, but, but I, we can't be praying God to come down. And I'm not saying, I don't even know we are. I don't even think we are all worshiping songs. The songs have to shift to the real true direction of our relationship where God always says, no, you come up. When you worship, though you are physically maybe in a seat, you are invited to enter into a dimension in His presence. You never need to welcome the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that went over well too, Raymond. If he is inside of me and I welcome him, it's a confusing statement. 
It's saying this. I don't, it's praying that Jesus would be with you. But he says, I'll never leave you. So is your prayer a statement of unbelief? Yes. Welcoming the Holy Spirit is a statement of unbelief. It, it is a statement that you do not believe he's already there. Listen, he, is, he cannot be separate. Jesus says, no one shall take you out of my hand. What I put in you, the enemy cannot take out. It is not I who live. It's not I who I'm not animating my life anymore. It is Christ in me animating the Father's nature by His Spirit. So if I welcome Him, I'm acknowledging I don't believe that. We've got to change our language to be in concert with our revelation. He said, I'll never leave you. I believe that. I believe He's in me. But, but I do this wrong. I do that right. right. I, get, I get that. I get that. That's where blood comes in. It's not your righteousness. It's not your keeping of his secrets. It is his righteousness, his keeping of the secrets, which by, by his own statement, he says, you're the light of the world. What does that mean? That you're a moral statue? Come and look at me to live a good life. I pay my taxes. I do this. No, that's not what he's talking about. He says, when I am a light of the world, I bring light to that which is concealed, which are the mysteries of God. Ephesians says this. Paul says, listen, this has all been a mystery that is now open. And and he says, I have set my king on my holy hills. Go go to Psalm 110. Where, oh man. We pray over the, we've got to pray over the angel of the clock. I want an angel up there that just kind of does this. And fills your stomach so you're not hungry. We need, we need, what's his name? Kirby. We need the anointing of Kirby here. You just, you, you know, you just won't get hungry for that. You'll get hungry for this. All right. I know some of you are like, who in the world are you talking about? The Lord said to my Lord, Psalm 110, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of where? Come on now. I, you need to see yourself in this. This stuff will get you excited. Rule in the midst of your enemies. We ask God to remove our enemies. God's saying, you kidding me? I put them there. What is more important is how you release my nature than what I remove. This is maturity. An immature person wants his, his, don't want to go to school. He just wants summer in the winter. If you know what I mean. Whoever wants, nobody wants to go to school. I probably have somebody here who just loves school. You just mess up my analogy. But, but most normal people don't like school. Or didn't. But you had to. Because it was part of your development. He says, listen, I set your enemies in the midst. And by the way, Psalm 23 talks about that your greatest meal will be surrounded by your enemies. Yeah. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In other words, they will follow you not because of money. Not because of an agenda. They will follow you because they love you. The church of Jesus Christ will do the things that they're called to do simply because they love their king. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning you have due for your youth. The Lord has swollen and he will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, not Levi. The Lord is at your right hand. 
He shall execute kings in the days of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. I mean, this is pretty gruesome. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. What he is saying is that judgment comes out of Zion. And everything will be put in order. And we all have this image that somehow there's this singular throne and we just get to observe like watching a TV movie when in fact we are the agency through which that judgment is executed. You are kings and you are priests. Let me try to go to Hebrews. Well, let's go to Hebrews 7. I'll do this quick. I thought I, I, I anticipated I need at least three weeks for this. I want to go into in detail next week. I want to go into in detail Jesus' life and why he's from this order and what does that mean. I appreciate you guys so much that you can allow me to speak about these things while some of your lives are falling apart. I really get that. I will tell you this. I am confident, maybe more than confident, that as you lean into your destiny, your circumstances must obey. I believe that. So what would be smarter? To attack your circumstances that can attack you back. But to come into the presence of God, learn who you are, and all those things, he said, shall follow. Matthew 6. It's not an easy thing to do, and therefore I acknowledge your courage. And I believe the Lord acknowledges your courage, so, so that's awesome. But look what happens in Matthew. Actually, Matthew, I'm sorry, Hebrews, Hebrews 7, but I'm going to go to the last two scriptures of Hebrews 6, verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Huh. Where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, say forever, forever. according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, I'll, I'll drop this one. Let me just say this and then... Hopefully, it'll entice you to come back. There was an offering outside the gates of the temple, which was the offering of the red heifer. And in the priestly order of things, although you were born a priest, you were not released in priestly duties unless there was a high priest who actually offered up the red heifer. So you could be born into that lineage but you cannot act out the purposes of that lineage until somebody sacrificed the red heifer. I will show you how Jesus sacrificed the red heifer so that those who are born into him are not priests because, only priests because of their heritage. They are priests because of what he did. Because of Jesus, I can enter the courts. Even though I was born a priest, I can stay ignorant. Even though there were priests that were, were of Levi, they cannot enter the holy place or the holy of holies because the, that one act wasn't done. The priest who offered up the red heifer was of the order of Melchizedek, not Levi. There had to have been a higher priesthood to release a lower priesthood. So Jesus is the highest of the highest priesthoods to release the lesser priesthood. So he's king of kings, and he's lord of lords. When he died on the cross, it wasn't just for your sin. He did your sin, but he released you into a priesthood. 
When the Father accepted the blood of the Son, you were all, we were all inaugurated into our destiny. This good stuff. See, this is the stuff when the enemy comes at you, you need to tell him. He does not like this stuff. On the contrary, he hates this stuff. He said, listen, if you're going to talk to me through thoughts, let me talk to you with my words. By the way, Shem, you know what the word Shem in Hebrew means? It means name. The name of God is Hashem. That's, that's the word name of God, Hashem in Hebrew. Shem means name. Oh, we'll get into all this stuff. I, I, I'm, I'm like, it's like buckshot. I'm hitting some of you. I'm not hitting the other ones. So, so listen, let me just go through verse chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from... By the way, God always... Ta- I, I said this a thousand times. I'll say it a thousand more. God always talks to you from your destiny, right? He always talks to you from your... When, when Abram met Melchizedek, he was not Abraham. He was Abram. It was later on that God changed his name when he released covenant. But when he is referenced in chapter 7, he's not referenced as Abram. He's referenced as God references all of us by his view of our ending. God talks about the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. What is that? It's a circle. Why is everything out in space? Everything to the smallest components of our, of our makeup. Everything is a sphere. Why are planets round? Why are stars round? Why are galaxies round? Why do things move like that? Why is your brain round? Why are cells round? Why are, why are, come on now. It's because everything in the context of God is a circle. Time is cyclical. You ever heard the term, the paths of righteousness? In the Bible, that word path is a very bad translation. It literally means the cycle. It, it's, I don't know why they just, because it doesn't make sense to the writer, so they don't put it in. It literally, if you were to translate it in its original form, it'd be not paths of righteousness, but cycles of righteousness. See, God knows the nature of man needs to be taught. So what does he do? He says, I'm going to give you paths and cycles. And eventually, over time, through seasons and time, those who came before will add to those who are coming after. And you will eventually mature into who you are. If time was linear, I need to learn what my father learned. And he needs to learn what his father learned. But that is not the classroom of God. The classroom of God is those who came before you invest in you so that you can go higher. It is a wise man who leaves an inheritance for his son and his so he's not talking about money. He's talking about cycles. What we are learning, so I've been asked, do you really think that, that immortality is in your grip? Listen, I know according to Romans chapter 2, verse 7, that I will be blessed with eternal life if I just seek immortality. Whether I attain it or not, I don't know. But if I seek it, I get the blessing. So maybe my seeking is just investing in my children and in their children and in their children. Are you getting this? we got to get this thing, this momentum hyped up. Get the conversation going. Yes. Man will attain. When Peter says that the... Oh, now I'm getting into trouble here. When it talks about the world being burned. 
He's not talking about the world coming to an end. He's talking about a baptism that has to happen. Jesus said, listen, for you to enter into this kind of priesthood, you must be baptized by water and fire. We'll get into all that. Levi didn't have those requirements, but Melchizedek does. So the whole earth will be baptized by water. It has already been. Therefore, it has yet to be baptized by fire. Not physical fire, but by the glory of God that will cover the waters like the, the seas like the waters cover. The, come on. We just need to set this thing on fire. And we're just, everybody in the church is sitting back waiting for the Antichrist. Ah, how many red, blue, orange moons do you need? I'm not putting those things down. Those things are set for signs and seas. I can, but learn how to interpret that stuff. Anything, anything that diminishes the assignment of the Ecclesia, my internal thing goes, uh, check it out. Because Jesus' ministry and anointing increases. This is why He said, greater work shall you do. So, so if Jesus and those who came out of Him turned Ephesus upside down, and the, and the, the term for the disciples were these people who turned cities upside down, why have we lost that adjective, that description? That which should be increasing in momentum has either stabilized or decreased. And God's saying, that ain't gonna, that, that, I need somebody in the earth to get this thing rolling. All right, we, we're gonna, we'll get into all this, all right? I know I'm dropping, this is all good. We'll, we'll go through Jesus' life. I want to go. John the Baptist is amazing. The reason why he said the greatest of all was John. He wasn't just giving John a pat on the back. And there's a reason why he had to have his head cut off. Because the Levi had to be severed to make way for a greater priesthood. Oh, I'll tell you this. The Father shared with Jesus stuff on that mountain that we're starting to get a little bit of an insight on. That's why he was the greatest. Jesus said Levi was the greatest. But he was inaugurated into a different priesthood. Let me read this and we'll close. Verse chapter, uh, Hebrews 7, verse 2, To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. And then it goes on to say this, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, which in this reference is referencing Adam more than Jesus. Remains a priest continually because Adam was called the son of God and Melchizedek would have had access one layer removed of Adam's narrative of how he had a relationship with the father. And the whole so it goes on verse now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Also, indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi. So he's talking about Levi and priesthood and all this stuff. When he says he has no mother, no father, no beginning of days, no end of days, what he's saying is he's not part of the lineage that all priests are part of. He's outside of that lineage. Shem had a father and a mother. Jesus had a father. You can say he had a mother through Mary. Believe that. He certainly had a beginning of days. Because the Bible says he is a begotten son. The word preexisted, but he's not talking about the word here. You, you okay? Yeah. All right. Okay. 
Now consider how great this is verse 5. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from people according to the law. That is from the, their brethren. Though they have come from the loins of Abraham, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them, i.e. Melchizedek, he's talking about genealogies, all right? received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives, speaking of Christ. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Uh, all right. All, all he's, what he's saying here, and he's talking to, by the way, he's talking to Jews, so there is a level that he is taking uh, license in that they understood culture, they understood certain things that he's not explaining. They understood Levitical priesthood. They understood this thing. What he is saying is that when Jesus died, he did not offer his blood based on the lineage of Aaron, therefore Moses but he based it off the lineage of Abraham who had a relationship with Melchizedek. That's where Abraham's covenant comes in. In Galatians chapter 3, it says, if you are in Christ, you are an heir, a son, and you have the promises of Abraham, not Moses. The judgment that God has placed in you is that of peace. That's Melchizedek. He settled peace between a blood feud between Sherdolomar and Abraham. Abraham knew right away, I cannot live one more day without... He did it. What he did was right, but he still spilled blood. Remember why David could not build the temple? Because he had blood on his hand. Even though David was the apple of God's eye, he still had blood on his hand. God says, I'll let your son do what you want to do. He had blood on his hand. Jesus had blood on his hand. In fact, he had it all over his body. He said, the Bible says that we, he became sin. He became sin so that his blood can speak through it. And his blood speaks louder than the blood of Abel. Come on. Because of that, I am set and you are set as kings and as, as, as lords to reign in life and to execute judgment, but that judgment is peace. The world is where it is because there's an element and a dimension of chaos that is touching the systems of men, nature itself, the cosmology that is in creation has all been touched by chaos. Chaos is the absence of peace. The dove... Is the, is the global image of what? Peace, right? It's the UN. What was hovering above the chaos of the earth? What came back from the waters to Noah's Ark to say everything is okay? It was always the symbol of peace. You and I, in strength, administer peace. That's Melchizedek. He sets everything in order. Everything in life 
that is derived out of chaos is subject to the authority of peace. Cancer is chaos. Diabetes is chaos. Stress is chaos. I can, we can go into the anatomical and physiological stuff of all this to show you that these things cause the natural form of a cell or a life form to not operate in order. Disease is dis without ease. It's disorder. When Jesus walked this earth, he represented in the flesh the power of peace through which he administered order. He laid his hands on those. I wholeheartedly believe that there was a frequency transference. Because something that is disorderly is outside of their frequency, their normal range of frequency. Jesus held the harmonic convergence of the Father's presence in His body when He laid His hand on the blind person. The eye that cannot see must see. Because it was brought under the harmonic convergence of Jesus' frequency. His peace. What does He tell His disciples? When you go into the cities, go there and leave your peace. And He says, if there's no one to accept it, He said what? Take your peace back. It is physical and it is transferable. Oh, this is good. He goes, lay your hands on the sick. He said, you know, anyone sick, uh, bring the elders of the church and they'll land and the prayer of faith because it takes faith to release peace. It says the prayer of faith will cause them to rise up out of their sick bed. No, no. Oh, but if this happens on the Sabbath and if this happens, if they're righteous. No, it just says if you do that. That's the culture that we're going after. I want the culture that we're going after that we were raised. And by the way, elders has nothing to do with your age. just has to do with your pursuit. It has to do with, hey, we're just going to call the elders and this is going to happen. But you say, ah, I've not seen that happen. Yeah, there, I has not seen. Ear has not heard. No, come on now. I believe that. I believe there are things we're going after we've not seen. So the fact that they don't exist are not disqualifying their, their potential. I.e. immortality. I at least want to die going after not dying. Let us say, let me, I just want to at least, he tried. <laughs> and he believed God that crazy enough to go after the fact that he shouldn't be here. And, and, I, and, and it'll be okay. I share this in our, and, and it comes back to our personal, why we're here in Florida, why I'm here, we're here, it's because of many prayers, but one that stood out, one that has risen to the top and has ministered to me through the years in different forms. Uh, and I've shared, this, I've shared this here, I've shared this at the encounter. I had a real, real hard issue with failure in, in life. I hated failure, right? It, and and here's, it is not healthy, by the way, right? So, and I'm not, I'm not patting my back on I don't like to talk about this, but I, I, did, I did extremely well in school, in college. I did extremely well. I was the only uh, person that was actually hired in J.P. Morgan when they had a policy to only hire from certain schools. I came from a school that was not on that list, and they still got, I still got in. I mean, all this quote-unquote favor was because I hated failure, and I excelled. I excelled at everything I did, but it was from a bad place. We experienced failure, not only at one dimension, at like four dimensions in a week. And, and I'm not going to go into detail on that, but I remember this. When we felt the Lord was calling us to a completely different season in our life, and we were moving from New Jersey down here, not knowing anything about, gosh, didn't know anything. There was a lot of angst. I remember 
you, your back goes out. I mean, there was a lot. You, 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 like to say there was great faith. It was, we were, we were, it was great faith in terms of we were being obedient, but we were being obedient and dragging because we were leaving everything that was, that was causing our prosperity. Coming to a place where, you know, you come to die, not to live. At least that was the image, right? At least that's the image. I'm saying that's true. But I'm just saying that was the image. There was a prayer. I prayed. And it was simple. But I felt something break profoundly in my life. What was this? Rather, I said, God, I don't want to succeed anymore without you. I would rather fail with you than succeed without you. And I felt that a sword was taken out of the enemy's scabbard by my father. And said, he will not, he will not stab you with this. And ever since then, it's never been, there's never been an issue of failure. In fact, we've taken more risk, which means to engage more possibilities of failure than we ever had in my prior life. I was so secure that I had, when I went after something prior, I knew, I knew the results and those results are what they were. We lost all that. So how wise is to live a life when you can lose it all overnight? And that's when we lost it all overnight. I'm telling you, we lost it all over now. We lost the business. We lost every... I had three backup plans. All of them, all of them within a week because of the same event, because of the dot com. But everything I had was lost. We lost everything. Everything. And I'm not... This not my point is this. The strength of my life at that point was fear. I was afraid to fail. And people thought, you succeed. No, you don't want that kind of success. So I finally quote unquote conceded I said God I, I want to stop failing on my terms if I am going to fail I want to fail inside of you and he took me in on that prayer he took us in and said okay that's all I needed from you that's the rod I've been looking for in Abraham's in, in Moses's hand I just need that he needs one thing in your life Abraham I'm about to do something that will be written of and Cecil B. DeMille will do an awesome job at trying to replicate it on the screen I'm going to split a C I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Yahweh, Elohim, I'm going to do this, but I just need to know what's in your hand. He says, the rod, because that's what I need. Lift it towards the sea. What you think is insignificant, what you have considered maybe even aborted in your life, he's saying, just show me that. Just give me that. I'm going to raise you to levels. I'm going to bring you to understanding. That will be such a blessing in your life that you will talk about it for generations and your offspring will speak of the patriarchs of your family line. And, it will, and will, they will talk about Grandpa Raymond. And you'll become a true patriarch. And you'll become a true matriarch. Not because of money. Not because of social status. But because you will talk of the wisdom of God like Shem did in the days of Abraham. They knew he was alive and he had access through his grandfather to Adam. And he was a king because God told him, I want you, Shem, to fill the earth. Ah. We've just scratched the surface on Melchizedek. We are going to dive into Jesus. We're going to dive into why he was from this order. And all of that, we're going to learn our destiny more and more. Is that okay? This gets exciting. So I want you to stand this morning. Father, we're thankful. God, this is, we just come through a week of Thanksgiving. Uh, where the world itself, or at least this nation, uh, set aside a day to be mindful of the things they've been blessed with. And we're so blessed. We're not only blessed with the things that you have imparted to date, but we're blessed by the things that we are looking towards. 
So we look at thanksgiving from two perspectives. We look at it looking back and saying, thank you, Lord. And we look forward and we say, thank you, Lord. And Father, there's more excitement about what we're seeing ahead of us than what we have seen behind us. I pray, Father, for a release of blessing in the lives of these people who are here today and those who cannot be with us. I ask you that your word would penetrate deep, deep into their heart. That it would cause rivers to flow out, torrents to flow from them. Rivers that are living and alive. Water that refreshes and causes people to never thirst. I ask your blessing upon their household, upon their children, upon their children's children. I ask you, Lord, that you would even give us an understanding in this house what it is and what it looks like to build up an inheritance. That we would build up an inheritance of courage and faith and, and understanding that we can pass on and see those ahead of us to, to, to run like John ran to that tomb. And he ran and he overran Peter and he went right in. I pray for the increase of courage over our children and those who are coming before us to take your word, to run with it with abandon. And so, Lord, we thank you this day. Let it be said, let it be known that even this day, the, the last Sunday before we move into the 12th month of this year, this month is the representation of government, and that's what we keep hearing. So I anticipate that this December will be like no other December we have ever experienced, that we would come into a deeper, deeper revelation of what it looks like to govern and to do it from your throne and to administer peace where chaos has been ruling. In the name of Jesus, amen, amen, amen. amen. You guys have an amazing Awesome week.